and welcome to Better Done Than Perfect, a podcast for SaaS marketers and product people. Our awesome guest today is Agilas Muzakidis, a retention-focused B2B SaaS head of growth. And we're going to talk about uncovering product insights with uh, jobs to be done today. This show is brought to you by Userlist, an email automation platform for SaaS companies. It matches the complexity of your customer data, including many-to-many relationships between users and companies. Book your demo call today at userless.com. Hi, Agilas. Hi, Jen. How are you? Uh, we are so excited to have you here. The best head of growth for hire out there. <laughs> I can, I can <laughs> verify the, that. Yeah, can... with a ton of advice under your belt, willing to share some interesting case studies today, right? More than willing to do so. <laughs> for those who don't know you, can you give us a short background story where you come from and what uh, you are doing these days? Sure, absolutely. Where I come from? To answer on that, uh, literally, I come from Athens, Greece, and I'm currently based in Athens, Greece. I have a relatively long history in growth. Uh, I'm basically doing that job for my whole life. I literally don't know how to do anything else in my life which actually is a fear factor for me. So I'm doing that since uh, the age of 19. I started as a marketer, then I switched to product and then uh, focused more into uh, B2B SaaS companies. And nowadays, I position myself, let's say, as a head of growth that has a, a specialization in things that improve your retention. What does that mean? That means that if you're looking for someone to just go wild with PPC campaigns, Maybe I'm not the best one, but I'm the best one or among the good ones when it comes to retention stuff. Why do you think that the key to growth is in retention and not in uh, just generously spending your dollars on PPC and other channels on top of the funnel? Okay, great. I like using a metaphor for that, uh, the, a, a very simple metaphor, the car metaphor. So if you haven't proved that your car can actually perform mechanically, that the mechanics of the car are not well made, that they're not really well constructed yet, uh, dropping more gas into the tank might actually break the car because you're forcing it to work when it's not really well made yet. So that is the, that's the metaphor that I like using for retention. Lots of businesses find it, and I totally get it, and lots of founders find it, uh, let's say, more appealing, sexier to focus on acquisition to bring new customers in, but if they haven't solved the problems or if they haven't found solution to some obvious challenges that they're facing, sometimes they might just be dropping more money on the table, which means generating more unpleasant experiences to people that could potentially be happy customers. So I'm always uh, an ambassador, an advocate of uh, proof that you can retain before you start widely acquiring. Yeah. And we're talking not just startups who just are in the beginning of their journey. People can get pretty far ahead and still not get the full grasp of their product market fit, right? So you can have problems at later stages. I absolutely agree with you, especially last year and especially, let's say, the last two to three years. We have seen a lot of companies that wouldn't even remotely approach product market fit, raising a ton of money, raising millions, which perhaps gave them the false illusion or the, the false impression that they had product market fit. But 
let's be honest here. The the main metric that proves product market fit is retention. So if you can acquire someone and retain them, that's the thing that proves product market fit. And we can see large companies, very well-funded companies that have a lot of people, not really having a solution on why they cannot retain their people, their customers. But not all products are born equal. For example, solutions like our own user list, which is an email marketing platform, has naturally high retention. And maybe some of other platforms are seasonal by nature and they will have higher churn or maybe they target like prosumers who naturally churn a lot at all times. But if you want to work in that market, you kind of deal with it. How do you know one from another? That's a very good question. I was having a similar conversation with my friend Foti, the, the, the CEO of uh, Growth Mentor. And Growth Mentor is is naturally, is not really a SaaS, but is naturally a solution that you're not using for two years straight. You're, you have a problem, you're using it, you solve it, you stop. I would say retention, th- there's no, let's say there's no perfect retention. There's no specific figure that we can say that as soon as I reach that figure, I will have the perfect retention, just like there is no perfect uh, NPS score. Everything is relative. Everything is comparable. So it really depends on what other players in the market are doing. So that would be a benchmark of what sort of retention you need to reach. So let's say that user list, which is naturally a product that has a pretty high lifetime value, because as soon as you set it up, you just don't really look for solutions to, to change it. Let's say that it has a three-month retention at the moment, while uh, your biggest competitors have an average of 4.5 months retention. That's a low retention for you. It might be very high retention for someone else, for, for, a, for a company, for a, for a SaaS product of another industry, but for you is low. So everything is relative, and our benchmark to understand if something is low or high is competition, the rest of the industry. We got together today because you had a very juicy case study from 2021 when you got whereby as a client, uh, the video meeting solution that is a competitor to the big four-letter provider we shall not name today. So, and you had amazing results uncovering insights about retention growth product, et cetera, using jobs to be done. So tell us more about this situation, what kind of problems they were experiencing at that time and how you came in and what did you do? briefly and then we can like dive into more absolutely okay so something that's very typical in my work companies hire me for a problem but then uh, we discover something else that might be the cause of the problem or we discover that there's no problem sometimes or that uh, uh, they should direct their attention somewhere else accordingly whereby hired me to reduce their churn to help them reduce their churn. Not that they had an, uh, an insanely high churn, but, they, but, they, but they're a very proactive company and uh, a lovely product, and they wanted to do some things about increasing their retention. And I was hired during uh, the pandemic. Uh, that's, that's important uh, for the rest of the story, when everybody was inside. And um, as you remember, video, con- video conferencing uh, was doing a party. All the solutions in that industry we're having the time of their life. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a product person, but uh, I'm, I'm a product growth person, but I'm a big fan of customer research. Uh, everybody that is following me knows that. So the first thing that we had to do 
it was to diagnose the problem, was to understand and go deeper into what's going on. As I said, I was hired to reduce churn. I did a full evaluation of the situation and a couple of interesting things came up that uh, nobody was expecting. And uh, actually, one of the things that came up was uh, a very frequent uh, pattern when it comes to churn. And uh, that was positioning. So it, what was uncovered through research was one of, one of the biggest reasons that the company was experiencing churn was that they were not attracting the people that would appreciate the product the way that they had to. Back into the thing that I told you at the beginning, it was the time of pandemic. So a lot of people were looking for solutions. So everybody, every solution at this point in time was experiencing an explosive growth. But they were also experiencing a quiet or relatively high churn. What does that tell us? What it told us and what research told us was that there were a lot of people that were just passing by. They were testing solutions in order to find out which one was appropriate for their use case. So as, all, as those people were passing by, they were testing solutions, they were producing churn or they were getting more sophisticated with a solution that was originally made to be simple and then they would go to another solution that was more feature rich. So needs were changing and suddenly the sophistication of the users had to go from zero to 10. So everybody was experiencing something very odd back then. So a lot of interesting things were uncovered through that research. One of the, one of the other interesting things that, were, that was uncovered was that web conferencing is, isn't one thing. In, in fact, it might be 10 or 15 different things. We web conference with family. We web conference with the clients. We web conference with our team, uh, with small groups of our team, with large groups of our team for weekly team meetings. Um, we speak with... Um, suits we speak with startups um, these are two different use cases and i'll explain why uh, we speak with uh, as a developer i speak with um, my colleague another developer and we want to just pair uh, code uh, we speak with uh, we speak instantly we just want to speak with someone to get some advice we might speak for a well organized meeting we might speak on the fly so just to summarize, web conferencing, every web conferencing solution out there and whereby accordingly, they didn't have just to differentiate from uh, competition. They had to build a solution for specific use cases. And there were a lot of use cases out there. That was the other very interesting thing uh, that was uncovered. Another interesting thing, I will, I will have a series of interesting things that blew my mind back then for you, Jane was that their most vulnerable competitor was, in fact, their biggest competitor. Uh, it's the four-letter uh, solution that you named yourself. And uh, that insight was, was very interesting for me because until then, the company and every company in the market is and was a little bit phobic of that competitor. But in fact, it seems that a lot of people despise this competitor and that insight generated a marketing campaign of a multi-million budget that generated amazing results for the business. 
Oh, a lot of other uh, interesting things uh, were uncovered. Another another thing that I that I was telling you before we start the the conversation. All these past buyers, all these people that were testing solutions, as they were passing by, they were communicating their requests, their concerns, their uh, complaints. So whereby and every other business in the market, they were building a large list of requests that were driven by people that they were not necessarily the people that they wanted to focus on, which resulted into a product roadmap that was in a large part driven by the wrong people. And that's very tricky. And I see that quite frequently into larger businesses that have a lot of customers and they haven't done their segmentation properly. Lots of customers, they will ask you what they think is right. They will ask you what they're missing. They will ask you, they will ask you very spontaneously what, uh, what they have seen in their competitor. That doesn't mean that if lots of people ask you something, you have to build it. Building something needs to be very strongly connected with where, who do you want to be in the next two to three years. It would be easy for everybody to just make a list of all the features that exist in the market and just fund a very large development team and build everything and be everything for everybody. That doesn't work. We all know that. So whereby at this stage, they had a list of features that if they would build, they would become another solution in the market. And they would lose that very unique characteristic that made them lovely and very successful, that they were doing a few things, but very well very well they are and they used to be the number one solution for chill meaningful conversations in one-to-one setup or small groups if they would build all those things they would change they would become another four-letter competitor but they wouldn't be better than their four-letter competitor they would just be an inferior alternative of their competition there are so many aspects to the story to unpack because it just sounds wonderful as a story post-factum that they arrived at this beautiful solution. would love to hear more. How did you undertake the research process to uncover those insights? And you've used the jobs-to-be-done interviewing method and uh, you did it yourself. How many people did you interview? How did you pick the right people to interview? What questions did you ask? Okay, that's two, three questions. I need to organize my thoughts so that I don't like, uh, <laughs> I don't confuse you. I, I will just do a brain dump here. Let's start with something important. Jobs to be done. A way to approach customer interview, but not just that. A way to approach pretty much everything. And let me explain what I mean. Every business, where I buy as well, and especially a, a sales-led business, because where I buy is a strictly product-led business, they have some... Uh, user interactions, some physical user interactions and some digital uh, user interactions. For example, user list. When a, a new user joins, you, ha- you probably ask them, uh, who are you? How, what's your title? What is the thing that you want to do? You might ask them a couple of questions. That's a user interaction, a digital one. Perhaps you also have the option of a demo. Uh, you don't, I guess, but perhaps you have it. Uh, that's another human. That's another user interaction, but uh, human-driven. When uh, this same user uses your product and is is not satisfied, uh, they might uh, want to cancel, 
And uh, you ask them a few things. You ask them, why do you want to cancel? That's a user interaction. And then you might propose them an interview. That's another user interaction. So my approach generally is apply jobs to be done in all user interactions, in every, in every timing, in every type of question that you are making to your customers, either that's initial interaction during the qualification or a demo or a sales call or a cancellation interview, or a cancellation survey, or a CSAT question, or MPS, whatever it can, that can be, just apply jobs to be done to it. Why? Because jobs to be done is just a different way of approaching that feedback. It might, it will change the way that you're asking the question, and therefore it will give you better feedback. So now let's go to exactly what I did. The first thing that I did was to check what sort of qualitative data the company had. So the company had qualification data, cancellation data, cancellation survey data, and they also had uh, a lot of customers. So I, I, I had the opportunity to speak with these customers. The first thing that I did was I, the, 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 easy, the easy part. I checked their cancellation data, why people say that they cancel. And what I, what I saw there was um, a non-jobs to be done driven cancellation survey that was asking face value questions. Why are you canceling? Because it's too expensive for me, because I'm not using it anymore. And what are you switching at? I'm switching to the four letter competitor or to that uh, corporate competitor or to this competitor. So that, let's take that as a beginning. It would say nothing for two reasons. First, because at the time that people cancel, they don't remember why they cancel. They re actually, they do remember the why they, they cancel now. In most cases, when someone cancels, it's because they just saw a bank charge at their mobile phone and they remember that they still pay for something that they have decided three months ago that they don't need anymore. So the true reason of cancellation, people don't remember it at this time. That's why they tell you, it's too expensive for me. Too expensive compared to what? It was not too expensive for you six months ago. I'm not using it anymore. Why? You used to use it six months ago. So when you just take these answers at their face value and you believe them, or when you believe that, oh, I'm leaving because you don't have that feature, but you were happy six months ago when I didn't have that feature. You have to go deeper into that. That's the first reason. The second reason on the cancellation survey, when you ask your, your customers uh, to, to whom they're switching at, what you will get back is numbers, like 30% switch there, 20% switch there. What does that tell you? In some cases where your competitors are doing something very specific and they, they focus on one use case, you might be able to understand. But in most cases, you just get a vanity number there. What you need to understand is the job that they want to do with this competitor, that this competitor is doing better, for, better than you. So we changed this experience entirely to just start collecting better jobs to be done driven data. And instead of asking what competitor are you switching at, we asked, we provided options where we described their competitor, the, the competitors with use cases. For example, we said, I switched to a competitor that is better for online courses. I switched to a competitor that provides me the opportunity to have a larger groups. I switched to competitors that help me record um, shows. I switch to competitors that do that, that do this, that do that. Therefore, we stopped knowing <laughs> what percentage of people went to 
this competitor or the other one, but we started realizing why they were doing it. So that was the first jobs to be done thing that we did. The second thing that we did, we spoke with people. We spoke with two, initially with two segments of people, people that we identified as not good, churned people, dissatisfied people, and people that we uh, identified as very good customers, power customers. How did we do that? We had to use certain criteria. We used retention criteria and financial criteria. Who pays you more and stayed the most so far? Okay? So we spoke with these categories of people, and we started realizing that after six or seven interviews, that there was not one use case here. We had multiple use cases, and that's the nightmare of a customer researcher because the more use cases you have, the more your project multiplies because you have to dedicate almost the same amount of customer interviews to each different use case or at least to the use cases that are important for you. So at the end, we spoke with a relatively large number of people because there were a lot of use cases, as I told you. But out of this conversation, we realized which of these use cases were producing good customers or churned customers. So the good customers were, having, were demonstrating a pattern into the use cases that they were having, while the churn customers, again, were demonstrating a pattern into different use cases. So that was very, very important for the business because it gave a direct feedback into what sort of use cases they need to communicate and to position at. I'm keen to hear the relatively large number, like how many is that? Is it dozens? Is it oh, like dozens. in the level of in the level of hundreds? Dozens? No, More no, like no dozens? not hundreds. No, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say hundreds, <laughs> but I would say several dozens uh, for churned customers and several dozens for power users. And that's a relatively large number for me because it was the first time that I was uh, that I was working with a solution that had so many use cases. It uh, whereby is a is a big company. Uh, and web conferencing is a is a relatively generic topic, so it, it attracts a lot of different use cases. Imagine, um, imagine how many use cases Mailchimp has. It uh, it has like an, an, a huge number of use cases because they do email marketing. Period. Uh, while uh-huh. a more specific competitor that does something specific has less use cases. Yeah, we're kind of happy that we at least are. certain about the audience we serve, for example, at UserList. This is definitely SaaS companies and like, that's it. That gives you so much clarity for us as a smaller company to compete with folks like MailChimp and Intercom who have like gigantic user bases. Exactly. I have a friend who ambitiously started out with something as generic of a product. So like a productivity tool that could be helpful for everybody, like a communication platform. I'm not going to call names because I didn't get his consent. But ultimately they did like, again, dozens of interviews and they decided to niche down on a specific use case because that's where the majority of their happy customers retained customers came from. So that might be also an option. But Whereby wasn't really going to drill into one use case, were they? Uh, They were up for continuing to be a wide, like, horizontal platform. Whereby was built with amazing Scandinavian taste. And it was built with a vision to become a very easy and chill solution. And they made that. 
The question that arises is, who needs that element of chillness within their mm-hmm. conversations? And that element of chillness, if you break it down and you try to do some segmentation with that, you will discover that there are specific use cases that require, absolutely require that element of chill. And they require a real estate of the windows during the conversation that is equal and nice chill colors and a few features that work perfectly. Not too many features, not too many capabilities. There are specific segments that need that. And um, whereby I was, was doing that, but, the, but it was the pandemic. So during the pandemic, lots of things that were uncontrollable happened for everybody, for, for the whole market, I guess for their four-letter competitor as well. You highlighted the fact that there were the, many of those people who were passing by, whereby, ironically, the way it sounds. And where do you think the company should do that filtering? At the stage of the website, H1 headline subhead, like we're doing this for those people and nothing else. Or do you feel like that should be like self-qualifying during like product sign up or in the product experience or in other materials? Where does this messaging mostly should appear? That's a very good question because that can get a little tricky. Why it can get a little tricky? Because you might not want to take the very bold decision of filtering out all the rest of your of the use cases through your positioning. You might want to do it further down the, the onboarding funnel in a more discreet way because if you take the bold decision of uh, baptizing yourself in a very specific manner, uh, you might not be able to go back. You might not be able to revert from it. So I would highly suggest for businesses to find this middle solution where they describe who they are but they don't get extremely specific into that. For example, um, let's uh, let's talk about Whereby, which is uh, which is an example, uh, or another solution like uh, Whereby, um, a solution that uh, you can have uh, a meaningful conversation that looks like a real meeting is a good positioning. But then you can give several options as to which are the segments that find that characteristic ideal. I wouldn't propose to any business like Whereby or anyone else to specifically and explicitly say that we are building a solution for you and you and you, period. So that's when it comes to positioning. But then you have some qualification questionnaires in most of cases. These are very, very important and very useful because you can uh, start collecting jobs to be done there. And then if you monitor these people, if you monitor what are these people doing during their their lifetime within your business, you can very easily understand which are the initial expectations that generated good customers and which are the initial expectations that generated churn for you. So if you ask the very simple question at the beginning, what do you expect to do with our solution? And you give a couple of options that are driven by literally a bunch of interviews. And then you ask a similar question, but reversed at the cancellation stage. What were you expecting to do with our solution, but we failed? And you give options. You are able to understand which are the jobs to be done that you are failing. Therefore, you can create a feedback loop 
to sharpen your positioning as well or to build stuff that attract the right use cases without you going out and just started shouting a positioning that will that might restrict you in the future it's a very delicate job here in my view i have done that mistake that's why i'm saying it needs to be delicate because w w once you put it out there sometimes if you're big you can get it back we almost um, faced a positioning disaster at Usalist last spring, but thankfully we decided to t like mini test it with a Twitter screenshot. So one of our unique selling features, uh, most most unique because other providers can't do that, is the ability to combine users into accounts and doing account level marketing, account level everything. But it's interesting that it doesn't apply to every SaaS business out there and Unless they are really aware of this pain, they don't even know what we're talking about. But we were wanting to plant that flag as the only solution that provides account level onboarding. And we wanted to put this on H1, like on our homepage. And so I did. And I posted the screenshot of that website on Twitter. And we got like a flood of messages saying like, oh my God, I'm your customer. Do I need to leave now? Because it doesn't apply to me anymore. And we're like, no, 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 wait, like, <laughs> like, please, nothing is changing. We're just decided to niche down, but apparently it was not a successful attempt to do that. And Derek Reimer arrived at a better way of saying that is the email solution that understands your customer data without more specifically explaining like account level and other things. And that's the wording we went with for a while. And now we are just saying more vaguely that meets the challenges of your SaaS. That's the ultimate uh, wording. But yeah, that was pretty dangerous. Like we were close to driving away half of the traffic with these kind of wording. That's, that's very like, interesting. That's scary for a small business. <laughs> very, so you launched a very successful feature, a feature that I totally understand why people might want it. But that kind of went against your initial positioning and that backfired a little bit for you, even, even if the, that was just an added value. If the feature wasn't new. We had like a large part of the customer base who were highly enjoying it and finding it very valuable. It just wasn't for everybody. And uh, we have a friend, SaaS, uh, Inner Trends, they do analytics, and we talked uh, to Claudio and they have the same exact thing. They only talk about account level things when people ask for it oh, yeah. and until they do they don't even like try maybe maybe very vaguely mention it so yeah that's an interesting was an interesting time for us for sure let's talk more about jobs to be done again sure. you've done dozens of interviews over the course of your life hundreds probably in a blitz fashion like your top five recommendations advice uh, tips for conducting a jobs to be done interview especially that a typical one is 30 minutes. Like the recommended one is 60 minutes. But you can like safely do 30 minutes with a busy person, right? How do you do it all in 30 minutes to begin with? Uh, thank you for that question. It's, uh, it gives me the opportunity to have a, a very short uh, rant about the 60-minute interviews. The 60-minute interview rule was uh, came out of the laboratories of jobs to be done came out of the academics of jobs to be done, of the professors of jobs to be done, people that rarely have done an actual job to be done interview for a SaaS business or for a smaller medium business to realize that it's not realistic to have the attention 
of a user for 60 minutes. So also what's not realistic is to uncover um, the whole jobs to be done timeline, which is like a very popular uh, framework uh, to use the first thought and the second thought, you cannot really uncover every little detail. And in some cases, it's not really significant to uncover all those information. What's significant is to understand some basic emotions, some basic emotional uh, jobs, functional jobs, and a short story of the user. So what I, what I always recommend uh, when, I'm, when I'm teaching jobs to be done is the very first question for everybody is tell me your story with our solution. What I, what I always say to people that want to do interviews is instead of structuring it like a survey, like a, like, a, like a survey in the form of a video call, just try to direct a little movie. A movie, if you're a movie director, you need to have the characters of the movie, you need to know the emotions of, of the people, you need to know where they are, what they felt, what they did, what they thought. So if you just approach it like that and you start with a question, tell me your story. What happened? Where were you? What was going on? What you were doing? Just uncover the story. And as soon as you uncover the story, all the rest of the jobs to be done questions that experts share with you, they can be follow-ups. That's a very safe way to do a conversation, even, even if you're a newbie. For example, tell me your story with user list. Yeah, I was looking for a solution to do that and blah, blah, blah. Okay, what other solutions have you checked when you were looking a solution? See, I just, um, I just made, that wasn't really a good jobs to done question, by the way. What other alternatives would be a good, a good one? So what other alternatives have you considered when you were checking? So I just did a follow-up question to the story question that seemed natural. It was organic. It came nicely. And it was easy. More That's than... my favorite demo question. Like, I always ask, like, what brought you here? What you're trying mm. to solve? And what other tools are you considering at the moment? That gives me, like, an insight into the whole journey of what they're doing. Because they usually not just name tools, but say, like, how they arrive there and, and, and some more. Exactly. Exactly. It also, the storytelling has power. Uh, when you ask people a very specific business-related question, like what other solutions have you considered, it's a, it's a kind of cold question. Lots of people will just relax when you ask them to tell you their story, to tell you their challenges, to just share their stories. And that gives you a lot of opportunities to do very good, very sharp jobs to be, jobs to be done questions. So first tip, always start with a story question. I mean, uh, I, had, I had a training to a team, uh, to, a, to a very good uh, inbound marketing team that wants to do jobs to be done interviews for their customers. And I was like, I was screaming at them. I was like, yeah, I need to see that as a tattoo in your hand. I always start with a story question. Second, because you have to do a good icebreaker. That's a very good icebreaker as well. So what's a story question in particular? Like, how does it sound? Hi, nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. Tell me a little bit about your story with UserList. A very, a very vague question, very generic question. You pick what you will tell me. Uh-huh. I don't So, like, choose your own adventure. Exactly. Like, completely. Exactly. You choose mm -hmm. what you want to tell me. You choose what is your story. You choose what are the important events of that story. And that tells me something. And then I can go on fo with follow-ups on that story. That's nice.
so we touched on the interview length. We touched on the like how you start and what kind of question to ask first. Other tips? Other tips. Okay, uh, I spoke about icebreaker. Icebreaker is uh, is crucial. Uh, it might not be an expert advice, but you, if you ruin the icebreaker, you might ruin the whole conversation. Uh, second tip: uh, always start with uh, the story one, the story question. Uh, third tip: remember that we are talking about alternatives, not other uh, competition comp- competitor tools. Very important. Lots of people just forget it. Uh, when you wanna explore. Um, your competition, you need to ask and you need to remind them and you need to reinforce them on the idea that when I'm asking about alternatives, I don't mean only software. I mean, it might be a person, it might be a process, it might be a solution, it might be anything. You have to remind them that because most of the people automatically will just tell you the solutions, the tools that they checked in G2 before they actually trying you. But let's take the example of an accounting software. An accounting software, when I, when I decide that I need a software and I go to G2 and I compare solutions, I might switch from an accountant or I might switch from a spreadsheet. The accountant, the spreadsheet, and the other software are all of them your competition. And in fact, the accountant and the, soft, and the spreadsheet might be bigger competition than the rest of the software. In fact, if we go even deeper, you most likely compete with spreadsheets. Like 90% of the software out there compete with Google Drive, Trello, Slack, with like five different software. So your competition isn't like this poor little team that shares exactly the same anxieties on the other side of the world. Your competition (laughs) is, (laughs) they probably see you as competition as well, and you're having this passive-aggressive war of features between you but nobody cares. Your biggest competitor is what people actually do instead of you. And that might be just a Google Doc. That's uh, another tip. Another very cool tip, uh, it's a fancy one. I won't, add, I won't uh, hide that from you. Is the, you need to be a little bit of a psychotherapist. So when you, when you go back to the timeline, and um, let's say that I'm asking you, Jane, okay, uh, what happened that made you consider another way of doing that. By that, I mean the job to be done that you have shared with me already. I'm referring to something that happened in the past, probably three, four months, six months ago. You don't remember. Most probably you don't remember. And if I ask you at the moment, Jane, what did you have for lunch like five days ago? You probably don't remember. But if I ask you, Jane, what did you have for lunch yesterday? And then what did you have for lunch the day before that? If we go step by step into the past, and if we connect the incident of your lunch five days ago with other associated events around it, like where were you? What was the weather? What did you do that day? Did you go out at night? Did you have a drink? Who were you with? So if I connect that with associated events, we will unlock the memory of what happened, the time of your frustration with the solution that made you switch. And that's important insight. So I always advise um, uh, researchers, just start from the present and slowly go to the past. Don't instantly ask questions about the past because people get nervous. They don't remember. They will lie to you unintentionally. I've had a few, few times that I needed to ask something that feels super stupid, but ask something a few more times in order to 
get to the actual reason. And it would have been stupid if there wasn't like a brilliant additional fact hiding like in the last question. Oh, and actually we also had like massive, like, uh, I don't know, parted founders, revamped our product, like launching something else, like completely huge events, but uh, a little bit on the sidetrack from this marketing timeline that we're trying to unpack, for example. So it's worth asking into more detail. even And then you can only do that during a call, right? You can't really do that via survey. No way you can ask like three additional questions uh, using survey data. That's just impossible to uncover. That reminds me of another thing uh, that, I, that I share as a tip, which is very close to what you said, which is uh, the... the the gracious way of asking something that makes you look like stupid. And what I mean by that, <laughs> in lots of cases, people will tell you something and you get what they mean, but they don't explicitly say it. So they will tell you, uh, you will ask, okay, why are you using user list? And they will tell you, because it's good. Because it's good. I mean, it's really good. <laughs> and good doesn't tell you anything. And you want to and, and ask, but not ask in a way that the other person will think that you are silly. What do you mean by good? And you ask and you ask and you ask. And there are some people that just stick, that just get stuck into the, the one thing that they tell you because they're like, but you get what I mean. But the, the essence of customer research is that I have to make you explicitly say what you mean because I, I should not assume what you mean. So I always, uh, I always advise when you do that, just pair it with, a little gracious excuse. Like, I know that might seem silly, but well, you said good. What did you mean by that? So try, <laughs> try to have it like, like a nice, gracious attitude when you ask why, why, why? Because people get angry with lots of questions. And the last thing for you today is about awkward silences, oh, which man. are the best. <laughs> lots of researchers, when there is an awkward silence, they get nervous and they fill in the void. So never do that. Just never feel the void. Just embrace the awkward, the awkward silences because in lots of cases, what comes after an awkward silence is useful. Yep, yep, totally agree. Uh, one more. And for the context, I interviewed Job, uh, Bob Mesta on UI Breakfast like three months ago and then I read his book and then I did a round of interviews. So I'm like well-practiced. There are different types of interviews uh, they recommend and uh, the one to uncover purchasing decisions is the so-called switch interview when you interview people who switched to your tool recently and people who switched away cancellations. In your case, you were speaking to like successful customers. Is there any difference in questioning from somebody who just switched and you were doing the switch interview towards how you're trying to uncover how a person is using a tool? Because these are slightly different use cases. Okay, great question. Thank you for that. Bob Moesta is a legend of Jobs to be Done. Uh, but uh, even if he's a legend of job to be done, I consider him the like a, like like one of the students of the Messiah, uh, which is Clayton Christensen. Uh, and uh, the Messiah had other students as well, uh, like uh, All right. Tony. Today Albert. I learned. <laughs> so there are a lot of uh, a lot of theories around jobs to be done, and the two most prominent one is uh, the switch, and uh, the ODI, the outcome driven. And uh, for some reason, people think that those two are competitive, that uh, you need to either pick one or the other. I don't think so, to be honest with you, Jane. I incorporate both of them. I don't see why you cannot have a specific outcome in mind and also switch 
from one solution to another. To answer your question, when you're speaking with power users, <clears throat> you focus a little bit more on the outcome. You focus a little bit more on what they're achieving now with your solution. When you're speaking with fresh or churned customers, you focus more on the switch. So both theories are very good, very useful. I see them as the other side of the same coin. But in some cases, you have to focus a little bit more on the outcome. And some others, you have to focus a little bit more on the switch because you just had the switch and it's fresh and it, it, it can give you a lot of insights. Uh, when you're doing the outcome-driven interview, what are the top tips? Like when you do the switch interview, you're trying to drill into the timeline and the details and what, what made them switch, why and why and why. How about outcomes? When you focus on outcomes, you are trying to uh, focus on what people are achieving and uh, how, what are the measurable criteria that they're using in their mind for that specific outcome. For example, I'm using user list because I want to improve my onboarding rate, increase my, my, the number of users that I onboard, or I want to decrease the time that I need to build an email onboarding or an onboarding. This is an, a measurable specific outcome. When I speak with power users, because they're actually using a solution and they're achieving something with that solution, but the switch is not really fresh to them. They have switched some months ago. They don't really remember. It's like I'm fishing for compliments if I, if I do a switch interview to a power user. I might ask a couple of switch questions just to see what, are, what is the competition that is most vulnerable that generated power users for me. But what is important when you speak with power users and when you're doing an outcome-driven innovation is to set the basis of what is ideal for you to listen from customers. And then take that basis, take that and use it as a benchmark. When, when you hear things that are different from what power users tell you, you have to understand why. Why, why that happened. Am I having a new use case that might generate a different set of power users? Or am I having a customer that will most probably fail within my solution because the outcomes that they, they expect are different? Something like that. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom today. That was uh, from the heart of somebody who's done hundreds of them. That's uh, really valuable. Thank you very uh, much, Jane. One do and one don't, and we've, we've, we've talked about interviews plenty. So one do and one don't when it comes to like insights and positioning when it comes uh, to that. One do, do customer research. Oh, uh, I know, I was going <laughs> to just uh, do that. Oh, okay, okay, another one, another one. No, no, another one. No, another one, because that's very, no, that's very, that's very boring. Everybody says that. Okay, uh, do create systems that give you qualitative research without necessarily you organizing ad hoc customer research. So see what are the customer, what are the customer interactions that you're having and just transform them into ways for you to generate good qualitative research. A sales call is not just a sales call, it's also an opportunity for research, a qualification. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Qualification is also opportunity for research. Cancellation survey is opportunity for research. Everything is opportunity for research and they all need to work harmoniously together because when someone joins, 
and then they live, you can compare things together. When they, what they said when they joined, what they said when they left. So see that as a big picture. That's what you need to do. And what you don't need to do. Uh, as a retention guy, I will tell you, please stop, for God's sake. Stop focusing entirely on acquisition. I know it's way more appealing. And I know lots of founders uh, see retention as like the vegetables on, uh, on the plate that they don't want to eat. I get it. But unfortunately, retention, uh, or fortunately, retention is actual money. Is money for you. Do you hate money? I'm pretty sure you don't hate money. So if you don't hate money, just focus on how you can make more money out of the existing customers. It's the most, uh, it's the best way to shield yourself from a recession as well. So what retention means? Focus on your emails. Create good emails. Create good content. Focus on your pricing. Um, uh, be close to your customers, uh, speak with them, uh, pet them if necessary. Uh, just try to make the best of what you already have. It's the best thing that you can do at the moment in 2023, especially at the moment because last year our friends in the VCs overfunded everything. So it's quite difficult for you to nail the top of the funnel stuff. So, I mean, just focus on your retention and you will uh, you will remember me. I love this advice. And it, like for us, it worked exactly like that. And moreover, when we doubled down on customer relationships, we've had coincidentally best months of growth for some reason. And it's not always correlated directly, Like, but there were also some upsells because some of our customers, for example, also added their marketing lists after our calls. And it just felt like the traction and the vibe of being immersed in customer relationships, it just kind of extrapolates on the business. I don't know. That is very a very uh, non-materialistic thing to say, but it works like that. I def- definitely agree with you, Jen. Uh, where can people find you personally on social networks and uh, elsewhere to read more or listen more to you? You can find me on LinkedIn. My name is pretty difficult. It's Agilos with double G, Muzakitis. Uh, but it might be difficult to to type my name, but I think I will compensate you back with uh, with some content that I write um, uh, on, a, on a weekly basis. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's full of bold, sarcastic, and uh, unlikable statements about B2B SaaS growth. You can also find me on headofgrowth.io, which is uh, my website. Uh, yeah, that's where you can find me. I was about to put this two cents in order to like spice up the interest to your personal brand that you like. You're uh, trying to be less likable and like more spicy online. But well, you did it to yourself, so I'm gonna go investigate your LinkedIn feed as well afterwards. Thanks so much for joining us today, and hope 2023 is great for you and your clients. Thank you, Jane. Thanks for listening. You can find a written recap for this episode at userless.com slash podcast. Please help us grow by leaving a review on iTunes.